Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director here at Long Now. I'm joining you tonight from the interval, and Julia Watson will be joining from Brooklyn, where she's going to watch the edited version of this talk with all of us, as well as answer your questions online. Julia is from Australia, where a few years ago, the megafires were devastating portions of the country, and she started asking, what are the indigenous technology solutions to these large environmental problems? And then she started researching them in countries around the world. She's now put this together into a book that Tashin published that is really one of the most beautifully illustrated and photographed books uh, I've seen in a long time. Julia has put together a few of these stories for us tonight, and she's gonna share them with us. Welcome, Julia Watson. I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world. Thank you for that introduction, Xander. I have admired the work of the Long Now Foundation for a really long time since it was introduced to me by one of my colleagues and also a Long Now alum, Dr. Stephen Lansing. And I'm extraordinarily honored to be able to speak with you today about my work. So I'd like to begin by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you today from the traditional land of the first people of Brooklyn, New York the Lenape people, past and present, and I want to honor with gratitude their land and also the traditional Lenape tribe. One of the most vivid memories of my childhood was sitting down transfixed and watching the Exxon Valdez oil spill. And I'm sure some of you out there can recall this terrible disaster. At four minutes to midnight on March 24th in 1989, as a tanker was sailing across the Prince William Sound, it struck reef called Bly. That was a well-known navigational hazard. The impact of that collision tore open the entire hull of the ship and 11 million gallons of crude oil then began to leak into the ocean. And initial attempts to contain this oil field failed and it eventually ended up spreading about 1300 miles up the coast. And this was the worst oil spill that the US had ever seen right up until 2010 when we saw Deepwater Horizon. So before this disaster, Prince William Sound had been this incredible haven for wildlife and biodiversity. But this disaster took incredible toll on the wildlife. It killed an estimated 250,000 seabirds, 3,000 otters, 300 seals and 250 bald eagles, as well as 22 killer whales. And it also played a major role in the collapse of the herring and the salmon fisheries later on in the sound. After days of sitting there transfixed and just watching people washing birds with household detergent. I walked into our family kitchen and I announced to my parents that I was going to become a marine biologist when I grew up. 
And then for months after watching this catastrophe, I'd sit there and I would be wondering, you know, what are we here for? And who is actually out there protecting the environment? And who's protecting all these animals that I'd seen on the television? So while I didn't actually follow through on my 11-year-old promise to my family to become a marine biologist, I did follow through in my dedication and my interest to conserving the environment. And instead of marine biology, I ended up studying architecture. And in my second year, I took a course that was called Aboriginal Environments. I suddenly realized that I really didn't have much of an idea about the spaces that I was designing. And then after architecture school, I went on to study landscape architecture so I could explore this idea of different ways that different communities live with nature and design their spaces. And since then, I've traveled the world trying to prove this idea and this suspicion that I had about communities and cultures that live really closely with nature, that they had already developed some of the most sustainable innovations. And those innovations were actually rooted in indigenous cultures and their knowledge. And they'd figured out these innovations a really long time ago. And so in the past 30 years, while my focus hasn't really changed that much, I have actually found some answers to those questions that 11-year-old me was asking myself. And today I'm a landscape architect. I teach at Harvard and Columbia University. And last year I wrote a book titled Low Tech, Designed by Radical Indigenism. So the title of the book is a bespoke word that I completely made up. It's a combination of two concepts or two words. Low-tech, L-O-W-T-E-C-H, was a word that's pretty common to most of us, and T-E-K. But what it is, it's actually a bit of a provocation to us and to, to really think about what are our inherited views and our inherited biases that we have towards local cultures and their technologies. And mistakenly, these low-tech technologies of indigenous cultures, they're often referred to as low-tech, L-O-W, and primitive rather than what they are which is sophisticated embodying all the same types of conditions of sustainability that we reference today which is low embodied energy low cost efficiency closed loop systems so moving on to tek now this means traditional ecological knowledge and it's the foundational knowledge that the book actually talks about and it's cumulative body of multi-generational knowledge practices and beliefs. And TK is a system of nested concepts and when you think about it diagrammed you can explain it as the construction of the world around a particular individual. It would include their local knowledge about their plants and animals within which they live, then outside of that their land and management systems, then beneath that, the social institutions which they inhabit and which they have influence upon. And then underneath all those nested concepts comes the worldview. And there are many different worldviews or belief systems about how humans think they exist within relationship to nature. And the way most of the world or Western world lives is just one way of thinking about that. Radical Indigenism isn't a concept I made up. It is actually a concept that was developed by a Princeton professor and a citizen of the Cherokee Nation, Eva Marie Garut. And she argues for a rebuilding of current knowledge through explorations of Indigenous philosophies and Indigenous knowledge 
that could be capable of generating new knowledge and completely new dialogues for us. So in low tech, I really brought this type of thinking into the sphere of design and sustainability, which is incredibly relevant in the context of climate change. And I've been arguing for a new look at these types of indigenous philosophies of knowledge of information within mythologies to try and think about how can we improve our understanding of technologies that are relative to sustainability and to resilience thinking. And so low tech I see as a movement and it's a movement to rebuild this understanding of indigenous philosophy and of vernacular design to generate new sustainable climate resilient technologies. So scientists have acknowledged that we are in the midst of the sixth mass extinction, but what we haven't really understood is that species extinction alone is not going to be the 21st century's greatest loss because those same forces that drive species extinction, they also endanger the indigenous nature-based technologies that we're not even really recognizing as technologies at this point in time that may actually hold a key to our survival. And these are technologies that have been passed down and evolved through generations in response to flood and fire and drought and sea level rise and even severe weather events. And these are the same crises that we're facing today. And what seems so strange to me is that when we talk about climate mitigation, we still think of it on the grounds of conservation pristine and undeveloped wetland, forest, desert and mountain landscapes, rather than considering that there are thousands of ways that local communities design space and live with nature and have adapted and developed their landscapes with incredibly resilient and sophisticated technologies that are more advanced than the design thinking that we have and use today. And so now I'm going to take you through a few of these technologies and explain how they might be radically re-envisioned and change our understanding of what sustainability and resilience could be. So living amongst the highest mountains in the Philippines and calling themselves the Sky People, the Ifugao are masters of terracing and they use water and soil and rocks as construction techniques and tools. And the terraces that they form are unique micro watersheds that serve as rainwater filtration systems for the waters that are passing through this mountain landscape. And they're a combination of shallow water, very high nutrient levels, high primary productivity, and they are incredibly ideal conditions for growing organisms that form the base of our food webs. What that means is that many species actually rely on these rice terraces in these incredible mountainous landscapes for food, for water and for shelter and especially birds that are actually flying through and passing on their migrations through this landscape and that makes them really incredibly important for global biodiversity. So these constructed rice terraces are actually one of our most important ecosystem and they act as these massive absorption and water purification systems as well as nutrient and biodiversity storehouses with a scale and a steepness that's really synonymous with our skyscrapers in our cities. Their biological performance has the potential to really inform how do we integrate landscapes into our vertical cities, the vertical landscapes of our cities. 
and it really hints at how our urban vertical environments could become also havens for aquatic, terrestrial and airborne biodiversity as well as urban agriculture with incredible irrigation systems. So in parts of the world where rivers are usually contaminated with sewerage, we can find there's one city of 15 million people that uses its floodplains to treat the water that is wastewater and sewage water that it's coming out of the city. It does this through a combination of sunshine, sewerage and a symbiosis between algae and bacteria. The wastewater which comes in about 95% water and 5% waste in this condition is then broken down. And then after that process of breaking down, the water moves into a series of fish ponds that then clean the water in a process that takes about 30 days. And on the edges of the city, which is actually the city of Calcutta, you can find this incredible wetland system and this incredible wastewater aquaculture system. And it's ribbon by highways and it's uh, flanked by this smoking escarpment of all the city's trash called the DAPA. You can find this incredible indigenous technology and it's composed of these 300 fish ponds that clean the city wa city's water while also producing the city's food. This innovation, it's not just a model for chemical and coal power free water purification. It also provides 100,000 jobs to the residents of the city of Calcutta. Given that Calcutta actually has no other formal treatment system at its core, it's actually the only way that the wastewater that's coming out of the core of the city of Calcutta can be cleaned before it enters the Bay of Bengal. There's an islanding and housing system also that's made from a single species of reed and it's called the Altala Islands and the Mariv Houses and you can find them in the southern wetlands of Iraq and this incredible waterborne community and technology is constructed by the Madan people. And they construct these floating islands by fencing off a section of living reeds that are called the Kassab and then upon that living fence, they stack the dried reeds plus mud plus dried reeds and mud until they create this floating platform. And these mudhif houses and these Altala floating platforms, they've actually seen these depicted in Sumerian Uruk imagery. So that would estimate this type of construction technology at about six and a half thousand years old. And the Kassab reed is actually integral not just to the construction of these islands and these beautiful cathedral-like houses, but it's also integral to every single aspect of life for the Madang people. But also it is food for water buffalo, it is flour for humans, as well as creating this material for these incredible technologies of the floating islands and of the arched houses that are actually constructed in as little as three days. And this Kassabrit, it is so incredibly versatile that it can be stacked into creating these islands, it can be uh, bundled to create these beautiful columns, it can be woven to create floors and walls, and then it can even be twisted so that it creates rope that then binds the buildings that they're constructing which are actually made without nails or wood or glass. And these Madan villages, they have been constructed in the marsh and they stay afloat for 
a generation, so about 25 years. So this last system that I included, it actually exhibits this phenomenon of simultaneous innovation. And the co-discovery of evolution by Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace is perhaps the most famous yet relatively unknown case of simultaneous innovation in scientific history. But then there are all these other unknown cases of simultaneous innovation that have emerged in isolated indigenous communities who've been confronting the same types of challenges in the same types of environments. So for example, islanding technologies in Iraq can also be found in as islanding technologies that are not exactly the same, but similar in Peru. So what we find is on the other side of the earth, situated on the highest navigable lake in the world, which sits at 3,850 meters above sea level, we find 50 floating islands that are built by the Euros community. And they also make their islands from a single species of reed, which is called the Totora reed. And the Totora reed grows in the landscape around which they construct these islands. Initially, these islands are constructed by cutting huge six foot by six foot blocks into the peat, which is the mud that the base and the root system of these totora reeds are actually grown in. And then they lash these bricks together. They anchor them to the base of the lake through wood and rope. Then on top of that, they overlay dried totora reed until these islands are so squishy when you walk on them that it feels like you're actually walking across a waterbed. These islands also stay afloat for about 25 years. So through the research, I've actually evolved, at this point in time, 64 different communities which use islanding technologies. And they were once found in Europe. They're currently found in Asia and Africa and South America. And we haven't even started really exploring these types of technologies by designers who are developing some of these floating cities and floating communities that we quite possibly could be living on in the future. So in 1966, the architect Cedric Price asked a very important question. He asked, if technology is the answer, then what was the question? And this provoked this in incredible questioning and really critical conversations that were happening in the field of architecture. And people were thinking about what was the impact of technology on architecture and on cultures and even on society at large. I think it's really important that we still keep on asking this question today, but 60 years later, I feel like I'm still asking a very similar but somewhat different question. And that is, if sustainability is the answer, then what was the question? Because we keep going higher and we keep going out wider and we keep on going deeper to extract, but to what end will sustainability really save us if we don't systemically change the way we're interacting with our earth and keep on creating these types of conditions. And we really seem really fascinated with the future and with, with ideas of sustainability. And we often forget as we look into the future that we also have a past that we can look to. It's really hard to solve problems that were created with the same set of solutions that created the problem in the first place. 
So really the most effective way to mitigate climate change is to recognize that there are solutions that are embedded in traditional ecological knowledge. I wonder what we could imagine if we were to look at all the other different cultures who have been developing and scaling sustainable technologies and those systems for millennia. Take for example the Cahumba forest farming system of the Chaga people who live along the southern slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro. So in this tropical montane forest ecosystem, the Chaga have actually added 650 new species of food and medicinal plants into the existing multi-level canopies, creating a forest farming system that is the size of Los Angeles. Another example might be these 1,500-year-old living root bridges that are actually grown from two species of ficus elastica tree across the rivers in an area of India called Meghalaya and they're grown by a tribe called the Kasi people. The community have actually grown 75 of these structures and it's a means by which they can cross the swollen rivers in the monsoon season and they take about 50 years to grow but in this landscape they actually last for centuries and this is a landscape where any other type of bridge will literally rot in about 10 years. So Lotex suggests that nature-based solutions to climate change, they don't need to be passive. Conservation areas like forests and wetlands, they can be active, they can be productive, they can be adaptive and they can be complex coexistences of many different types of species, both human and non-human, and they can use biodiversity as a building block for the future. So climate change has shown us that our survival, it's not really dependent upon this idea of superiority. Our survival is dependent on this understanding of symbiosis and using symbiosis in the way we design the technologies of the future. And also shifting our thinking from this idea of survival of the fittest to survival of the most symbiotic is going to be a really critical first step. Thank you. Thank you so much, Julia. Um, that was really fantastic. And the, the visuals are really stunning. And I, I think maybe one of the things that didn't come across in this uh, was also the diagrams that are in your book that, that really actually kind of exploded views of these ancient technologies drawn with you know, modern architecture uh, kind of CAD tools, um, I think is a really beautiful addition too. So I encourage people to look at those. Um, and thank you for joining us for questions. We have um, we have questions coming in online that uh, that Kevin Kelly is sorting and um, and then Stuart's going to join us for a question or two. Um, but I, I really, you know, we're standing in the middle of this huge historic fire season in the West. And it's interesting starting to hear people um, talk about the indigenous ways of, of managing the landscape that were obviously different than the Western ways, uh, you know, for over the for the last century. And I'm wondering if you've uh, done research into that. Yeah, thank you so much um, uh, for having me here tonight. And um, I have and I mean, being from Australia, we have seen in the fires last year, we have a similar situation that has been happening year over year over year. Last year was the worst fire, fires that we'd ever seen. We saw that landscapes that had been traditionally burned or culturally burned, they had seen like half a reduction of the impact of those fires and had been seen in other landscapes. And these types of management techniques, they're similar to the sort of Western preventative measures that are being used by um, 
different um uh you know people who are dealing with the wildfires but they're actually very different as well because they've been learned over generations they're very specific to to the types of ecosystems that the fires are being burnt within rather than being sort of universal types of um applications that are not so specific to place and specific to the types of environments and soils and blooming times of flowers and trees and and the, the sort of reproductive times of animals so indigenous fire practices and and management techniques they really understand the local ecosystem and the intelligence of the local system and they work with those local ecosystems and those local dynamics and that's the really big difference apart from the fact that in many places we actually don't use those preventative fire techniques at this point in time and then we just see this all this combustible fuel sitting there on the ground and that's why we have these sort of raging tornado wildfires that just the fronts and the the temperatures are so high the fronts are so big that they're just completely uncontrollable yeah yeah i learned a new term this year pyrocumulus yeah <laughs> a word i didn't never wanted to know um, yeah but um, yeah, you you remind me of the uh, there's a there's actually a, an indigenous clock technology that um, I remember reading about that the um, in um, in the highlands of um, now I'm spacing it but they the tribes there use um, the bird song throughout the day different birds chirp at different times of the day um, and so they recognize the species of the of the birds and they can tell you what time of day it is even in a, oh, in wow. a, canop in a canopied forest so yeah, it's, yeah. it's very cool um how many of these sites did you get a chance to get to personally and versus research remotely i think well initially we did 35 case studies so there's actually a whole lot more research that wasn't uh in the book i would say of the 35 we went to, i went to about half of those sometimes it was through teaching sometimes it was through jobs and sometimes it was just through travel um and sometimes the, some of these places were just not open to the southern wetlands of Iraq. I was invited, but right. um, having you had to get uh, permission from the government. We got the permission, and then their war broke out. Some uh, war broke out at that time, and so there wasn't able. I wasn't able to travel to those um, areas. But interestingly, those. Um, those wetlands in Iraq, they really just haven't been photographed at all because of these types of conditions. So somewhat, some of the footage is really kind of a time lapse of what we know before. But then there's also a person I work with very closely who lives there and who's um, Madan. So he sort of sends some images as well. So we see footage from 15, 17 years ago, and then we see imagery coming out now. And so um, we, I try to go to all of the sites if I can. Um, now that we're writing more and more, some of that, and at this point in time, it's a little right. bit more difficult. But um, yeah. I think being on the ground and really experiencing your it, the, these scenarios and these um, places myself is has always been the ambition and, and really um, incredible for the research as well. Cool. Um, and uh, Kevin Kelly had a question um, as he's he travels and or used to travel in Asia quite a bit um, and is seeing a lot of the younger generation um, abandoning the countryside. Did you, was this coming up at all, especially with these things that, you know, high maintenance areas yeah. like the terraces or those, you know, tree bridges and things like that? Yeah. And I mean, I, I worked in Bali for a period of time working with them in their first UNESCO World Heritage Site. And part, you know, part of the dilemma is these are incredible systems. These are incredible technologies and cultures. But in this um, 
transition uh, of this certain paradigm of development and progress, there's this progression towards wanting to um, modernize in a certain way that is being sort of imported from America or Australia or other places around the world. And then there's sort of there's this transition of jobs um, that people are really and younger people are um, investing their time in. And I think that, you know, this work really is sort of like saying, can we can we redefine like what this idea of progress is? Can we sort of begin to understand that perhaps this um, modern, you know, high tech flashy um, story that that we sell of the West being the best? Maybe that isn't really. And we're, what we're coming to understand is that 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 one universal paradigm of what progress and technology and and being um, modern is doesn't work. Um, it's failing us, and so we need other other types of ideas and other paradigms and these these are them and so abandoning these types of um you know these types of systems for the sale of this other type of idea or ideology um you you do see it in in a lot of these places but then there's a resurgence and it and it, it's starting to grow that with climate change and and with um you know um this sort of this sort of redirection of how globalization is being seen. I think people are really starting to take root in local ideas and understandings and really become much prouder of individual cultures. And I think that we're starting to see a shift and we're seeing it a shift sort of globally in sort of people transitioning into ideas of retaining their identity and retaining culture and, and sort of, and we, we've seen, you know, that this is something that people are becoming um, much prouder of. And so I hope in a way that this book begins to say like, these technologies are incredibly important. These are technologies that we need to preserve and, and, and to, and to use and, and to be proud of. Yeah, excellent. I mean, I think that's what really struck me about the book is it took a thing where it kind of flips the coin on yeah. um, on old tech and new tech um, for sure. And the I, I really loved your kind of your layers of indigenous technology thing, and it reminded me so much of the pace layer diagram that we use at Long Now of layers of of time, which actually Stuart. Uh, adapted from when he wrote How Buildings Learn. So it's adapted from um, basically architecture and we adapted it to time and, and you've kind of built a similar one um, in um, in worldviews and things like that. So it's yeah. very cool. Um, and uh, Nick uh, from online asks, uh, he asked if there's other places that either are using the root bridges or uh, should be using the root bridges. Is that a, tech a portable technology, do you think? Um, I know that people around the world have written to me and said that they're trying to grow root bridges oh, at really? different cool. paces. There's a there's a um, farm in Africa, in South Africa, where they're trying they're experimenting with growing these a, a sort of version of living root bridges. Um, and someone from Australia has written me and said that they're doing that as well. But not I haven't found independent communities. But interestingly enough. They think that that living root bridge was actually imported from Laos when a community of uh, people from Laos actually migrated about a thousand years ago up to that area of Cherupunji. And so it actually is a system that migrated from Laos up into northern India. Well, that's very cool. The, uh, yeah, and the simultaneous innovation part of the story is, is I think, really interesting. And I, you pointed out it happens in science, it happened in math, um, but it, and of course, I think certain uh, landscapes um, and 
climates are going to, I think, cause some of these things to happen. And I, I suspect fire management technology was is also a space yeah. where there's simultaneous in all kinds of hot, dry landscapes around the world that yeah. that that's happened as well. Um, let's see. Um, Bobby Rakuva from our feed asks, um, what do you envision in the intersection of TEK and AI for the next 10,000 years? <laughs> An easy question. <laughs> I've thought about this. So this is actually not super hard. Um, I think, you know, AI and, and TEK, I think there's a really interesting um, understanding. There's, there's a lot of ways that AI doesn't take into consideration other frameworks or other understandings and one of those is traditional eco ecological knowledge and the same as western science doesn't um uh isn't inclusive a lot of uh traditional ecological knowledge so if western science and western data is what is embedding itself within our ai what are we not what are we not recognizing and so therefore if we're doing you know, if we're using AI to try and understand environmental systems like forestry, what are some of the symbiotic relationships with are embedded into forestry, like relationships of the mycorrhizal layer and how the transportation of, you know, different nutrients, or we know that in Western science, but what are the, some of the sort of stories within and understandings within indigenous knowledge that we haven't recognized yet that could really inform us in understanding, say, okay, boundaries are inconsequential. We need to think of holistic understandings of El Nino and its effect upon masting of huge forest systems or reproduction of huge forest systems, which we understand sometimes from the mythologies of indigenous peoples and their understandings about um, very specific climates and, and places. So going back to you know, the question about pyrotechnology and the relationship between preventative burning of the West and preventative cultural burning of Aboriginal people, there is just much deeper understandings in in those relationships to place and culture and it's embedded in culture for gener generations and generations. So how can we see those types of understandings into AI? And that's where I think it gets really interesting. And how can we think about AI systemically embedded with environmental deep environmental thinking how would that change the outcome of the future that we could envision mm -hmm. no it reminds me very much of our our talk uh, with our last speaker also from australia who um who was talking about ai and kind of in, and basically just human human ethics and how that fits in i think yeah. those all tie in together um and it actually it's a good tie into the next question um from jerry machalski um uh, really asking like how do we and it sounds like you've already been doing this and so I'd like to get your insight in it is how do we con connect scientific process and thinking with indigenous ways of of doing things and how are you how are you finding those two worlds connecting um i mean i think the the most obvious answer to that would be to um to bring indigenous people to to the to into the conversations and to bring their knowledge bases into um, the sort of and combine them with the knowledge bases of Western scientific thinking and and recognize that this is a form of scientific thinking and it's and it's a highly sophisticated form of scientific thinking and apart from like what I do I think the biggest problem is that um, you know it, it, when I'm working on design projects and have worked with indigenous communities a lot of governments won't recognize the communities as being incredibly important and vital 
um, bearers of knowledge and stewardship and understandings of those landscapes. And, and, you know, that's, that's one of the biggest hurdles is really, um, you know, convincing and, and bringing the right people to the table and right people to meet and collaborate and, and to share knowledge and, and to allow us to move forward. There's a, there's a saying that I heard the other day is, you know, this social, look, you know, the global um, social climate justice movement, you need to get beside or behind Indigenous people and allow them to lead us. And I think that's going to be incredibly important for us. Cool. I love that. Um, let's bring in Stuart. I know that uh, he's working on a book on maintenance, and this, this crosses over pretty perfectly. Well, there's a thing on maintenance that uh, bears relation here, which is um, maintenance usually is pretty boring. Uh, creation is exciting. And a lot of the kind of the projects that you're describing are highly collaborative. A lot of people got to get together at the same time and make the thing happen. And one of the ways I suspect that people work around the boring aspect of maintenance is to turn it into ceremony or ritual yes. or, you know, make a big kind of dancey, musical, religious or whatever deal about it. Uh, did you find that out there? Yes, I did. That's, you know, a wonderful parallel. There was a system called the SUBAC and it's in Bali, um, mm. that's the rice terrace system. And they have a system of ceremonies, rituals all throughout the year. And the one I always refer to, which I think is just so beautiful, is the singing to the baby rice. When they're sort of maintaining and, and they're planting and first putting the plugs of the, of the rice, which they grow somewhere else initially, into the terraces, they sing to them. And I talk about ceremony as being a way to remember, to remember how to do something. Hmm. So embedded within the sort of the singing and is the knowledge, is the care, is the ideas of the maintenance. And then next year when at the same time you'll remember that you need to remember hmm. all these different things because the song will tell you how to do that. And apart from, and that sounds like Stephen Lansing's work in, in Bali. <laughs> it is Stephen Lansing. Uh, and he, he actually talked in the series way back when we started. It was wonderful. Yeah. Uh, did you find other cases where ritual and ceremony are put to use? Um, it's 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 really is sort of all the way throughout. There, There's always a sort of recognition of the seasonality and understanding of seasonality and mm those critical points of sort of different types of extremes that, um, you know, okay, there's going to be an annual fire. So let's prepare. Let's um, figure out and, and understand, like, how do we prepare? Because we've done this many times. So we'll know how to do it this year. And I think sort of, you know, that's part of the stuff that we've lost. So one of the communities that I look at, they're called the Anawane people there in Brazil. They literally live in ceremony for nine months of the year. It's called the Yaqua Festival. And it's all about the sort of the fishing, the smoking of the fish. They build these beautiful temporary dams that were, that was a, an imagery that was in the lecture. And, and everything is sort of about sort of sewing the, the, um, uh, they use sort of like a, a tuber and, and collecting the fish and their relationship with fish, which is really sort of celestial and astrological and, and, and bears these all these spiritual relationships. Mm. But it's, I mean, it's so interesting. Could you conceive of us living for nine months of the year in ceremony, sort of to have that relationship and celebrate that relationship with nature and life? 
So yeah, all th- all throughout, there's all mythologies and and understandings and ceremonies that really are about how to recreate and maintain these environments. Now, it occurs to me another angle here is is language, uh, ecological understanding. Uh, is often embedded in local mm-hmm. language. And when the language is lost, much of that knowledge is lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you find any of that in your work? Yeah, there there is actually a community um, called the Kayapo, and they used fire, fire technology again, mm-hmm. to um, very, very cool fires to selectively burn patches that then they, um, then they sort of... Uh, implant agriculture into those landscapes underneath the canopy of the tree which they save and they have like nine different words for the word ash because ash is so important to the fertilization of the soil that there's all these different types of ways which you can describe ash which I just think those having an expansive um, descriptive language for something that we have one single word to describe really mm. really shows you like what is what's the priorities for this particular type of community and and by by the words by the number of words which they use to describe sort of something that we use one word for and are the languages being actively preserved by the people I mean that must vary enormously from being totally lost and they have to reinvent their world and others where like most of the North American tribes now are really actively reviving their languages. Uh, Are you finding that elsewhere in the world? Um, I mean, language specifically, I mean, I don't focus on it very, very specifically, but from my understanding as well, there is a there is a revival of language in some locations and sort of there isn't in a lot of other locations and i think you know i'm speaking about say uh, you know countries which are starting to sort of unify their languages but often you'll see that these indigenous tribes they don't actually exist so much within the sort of dominant um governmental um understanding and framework as that country so you would say in india the, the people who are the Kasi, there is a really strong revival and learning and passing down of language because often they'll somewhat operate outside of sort of this, the the most dominant governmental structure. So mm. they're, they're within that, but they sort of also recognize themselves outside of that. And I think that's, that's incredibly important and vital and sort of probably should be more recognized and celebrated by, by countries to empower these communities to to keep that knowledge, mm-hmm. to recognize that our future is going to be dependent on these understandings. You're here. Thank you. Thank you, Stuart. We're going to actually, we get, we're able to get Kevin Kelly live, so we'll bring him in next. Kevin? Hello. There you are. Hi. Welcome. Hi. And um, sort of following up a little bit on um, an earlier question about um, keeping the kids on the farm. Um, yeah. Because in order to maintain these traditions and this knowledge, you really do have to have the next generation stay. Mm. And in my experience, they are running as fast as they can with one-way mm. tickets into the cities because they have Wi-Fi. And um, do, do you have any thoughts about how you can reverse that flow so that a young person growing up with a tribal language isn't going to leave? Um, and um, would want to stay and find a way to have the Wi-Fi and their ceremonies. Um, yeah. Because if it doesn't happen, then then those villages will empty out. Yeah, I mean, 
the work that I've done has often been uh, sort of large-scale master planning work within UNESCO World Heritage Sites, sort mm -hmm. of looking at that particular problem, even in these landscapes that are kind of celebrated as the, you know, of outstanding universal value. And you might think that there it would be easier for to sort of attract and have youth stay. What we've been looking at is really trying to understand how you can embed it's usually economics. Um, what I've found is that the, there's, it's more attractive to go and work in tourism industry or other types of industries because of money. So if if we can think about how to layer in different types of revenue streams that are that are not just from tourism, that might be about introducing symbiotic um, economic um, products to those local landscapes. So could you embed um, new types of technologies of um, coming from coir or, or coconut palm matting into a stream of um, rice farming so that they're in an off season because also these systems work seasonally. And so there's off seasons and there's seasons when there's a lot of work. And so is there a way that you can sort of build out the economic framework so it's not just dependent upon one single um, um, uh, job, but it's also, it has like rel jobs that are relative and and sort of um, amplify that, that landscape at the same time as well. So, I mean, there is going to be definitively, we know that that 75% of the population we think it's predicted will be living in cities in, by 2050. Um, I do know in countries like China that there there is this new um, pride and, and a new recognition that these indigenous landscapes are incredibly important and that there's, there is a resurgence happening that's regional to and sort of specific and, and maybe national that people are recognizing that this erasure is happening really quickly and that and there's a lot to lose and therefore you know there, there's a movement of youth saying that we actually do need to retain these landscapes and we do need to stay in these places. Um, I can actually imagine governments funding people to keep the terraces up and running um, because maybe even making robots to um, tend them because they're so narrow you can't get a tractor in. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so that might be something that is actually funded from outside. Is in other words, it's not really economically feasible just to grow yeah. rice, but it's economically feasible to have them there because they are just beautiful and they or maintain the, all the other all the other things that you mentioned that the rice yeah. terraces do, or for tourism as well. Or for yeah, tourism. yeah. Or the ecosystem services. So you right. know, in the future, when we're saying, okay, well, we don't have a lot. We have too much carbon dioxide. Um, we don't have a lot of clean air. Like how do we, or, or the East Kolkata wetlands that basically clean the water, the sewage water of the city of Kolkata for free. What's the reparation for these communities? Mm. They're, they're basically providing free services. If we sure. start to think of these technologies as infrastructures that provide all these services mm. to cities in the, that they sit in the landscapes of these cities, where do we sort of see, where do we sort of build in these um these sort of unrecognized or indirect costs because right. we're starting to see these indirect costs of our impact upon the climate now when we all wear masks and if we're in Oregon we're wearing masks because the air we can't breathe the air and because of COVID so we're going to have to start building in you know these indirect costs and these indirect environmental costs in the way that we understand and and you know manage our landscapes so maybe that's another way that we could start to think right. about that that equation. And I know that your research is really focusing on indigenous 
knowledge, indigenous um, perspectives as it pertains to traditional knowledge. But Mm -hmm. indigenous can also um, be the source of new technologies and new things. And I was wondering if you were paying much attention to not just traditional things being maintained, but actually um, some of these communities as sources of actually completely original new ideas um, that could only have occurred in a isolated um, place because they were thinking differently. I mean, I, I think that's kind of the that's kind of the thesis of the radical indigenism is that part of it is to like look at look at the old knowledge and recognize it, recognize it as new and and to recognize that new conversations can come from it. Um, part of the next amount of research that we're starting to do, which is kind of like a sneak peek into the future and where we're headed, is to do exactly that, is to say, okay, where are there, there new forms and, and, and new, new recognitions of technologies that are being evolved today mm-hmm. Maybe not in those particular the landscapes in the same way, but maybe they are happening. In, and we, I haven't come across that. Um, we've come across it in some locations, and we're like our scientists, our communities, our designers. Like, which indigenous people are actually sort of making those leaps? Which communities are starting to to evolve those systems, and how? And I have spoken to a number of communities in Africa where they're recognizing traditional technologies and the innovation is they're coupling them with contemporary business solutions to uh, to figure out how to scale those technologies and you know that's related to economics um and 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 different just assistance with trying to create business models that are conducive to those types of technologies and those communities so that's the other sort of new sort of understanding and 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 uh, innovation yeah that's great. Thank you, Kevin. Yep. And um, Jenna uh, asks that uh, actually said uh, she'd love to hear more uh, about advice for other landscape architects who want to be able to bring this kind of thinking into uh, into their field. Uh, just just as you have been doing this research as a la- as a landscape architect. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that as designers sometimes we're brought into work with different communities if we're doing any work that is around the world in in other countries and we come with a perspective and we're giving our expertise and we're giving our expertise based upon a selection of understandings and a selection of technologies that we bring to the table but what I don't think we're very good at at this point in time is going into situations scenarios and doing the research on the ground and and really understanding local conditions and talking to indigenous communities talking to local communities and say and and really having that speculative and analytical lens on to say well what is it here how can i catalyze that because if we were to amplify what already exists rather than to you know reinvent the wheel that's going to be a faster way to mitigate climate change and to really really you know shift our thinking and and shift our impact than if we sort of you know erase and 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 we come in as these sort of experts all-knowing and and sort of overlay with ideas that perhaps aren't really going to work for particular communities aren't, aren't responsive and respectful to different ecosystems and and don't have an understanding of like climatic extremes that exist within that that area so and the other thing I think is to really 
um, you know, from the very outset to bring in other stakeholders who probably and, and other people who are not normally brought to the conversation. And that's something that we need to be far more aware of and, and, and use our position and, and our interdisciplinary way of thinking to to bring other people to those conversations that aren't being being brought to the conversations because we need to show clients and governments and 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 different people that we interact with and we're responsive to that there is far more knowledge and technology and innovation and understanding out there that is recognized right now and so i think our place is to really champion these ideas and to bring them and to spread them and 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 to um to like build them into the way that we work as professionals yeah starting by doing a lot more listening than yeah. telling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Peter Layden um, asks, um, so you didn't mention biotech, and I, th I assume he means the kind of high, our high-tech version of biotech, not the, the low-tech version. Um, yeah. How do you think that that category of technology um, crosses over here? I mean, I suspect there is, there is biotechnology happening, especially in some of these sewage treatment yeah. systems and things like that. I, I'm, I think I, what... What I think is really interesting about some of these systems is I call it the sort of um, next generation of green technology or, you know, we we now we're, you know, we're moving into a phase of um, green tech where it's wind and water and tidal and, 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 and sun and what might be the next generation is really looking at symbiotic relationships and, and how symbiotic relationships and even down to the material and molecular scale, like in the East Calcutta wetlands, where it's sunshine and sewage and algae and bacteria, that's your energy system. So that's your producer in that ecological scenario. It also becomes your consumer and your reducer, which, you know, all these systems are embedded in one. So when we design something that sort of reduces our waste, like a wastewater facility, we design it to do one thing. We don't design it to produce our food to provide thousands, hundreds of thousands of jobs to, you know, mitigate um, carbon to clean water. We don't. We just. We don't design it with these multiple multiplicity of functions. And I think that's where it gets really interesting. And it ha can happen at that molecular scale, all the way up to the macro scale, where you can design this system to protect a town from flooding as well as to clean its water clean the sewage out of its water and that's where it gets so interesting is like also the sort of how do these systems work within themselves but then how do they keep on working beyond the way that we design them just because if you in nature if you put in a in a change at a really high level it has this thing called a trophic cascade where all these different different scenarios can play out that keep on building biodiversity beyond what we can even model at this point in time. That's what I think is so interesting about the systems if we can scale them. The the opportunity for changing biodiversity and, and impacting climate really could be exponential. We don't know. Right. And uh, you mentioned earlier that you're doing new research for a new project. Can you talk a little bit more about about that? And so is it going to be another book or? Yes. Um, yeah, we're, I'm doing research for another a book there is it was always planned as a series of books um and uh it's sort of this next book is really looking at a specific um a specific type of landscape so diving much deeper into one particular type of landscape um and then sort of trying to really think about also what is what is that relationship if we were to think of like 
what's high tech? Um, and, and starting to actually, the, the ambition is to start to co-author with indigenous scientists and indigenous designers and, and architects so that there's so many more voices that are being built and embedded into, into the landscape of the book and into sort of the territory of low tech that there's going to be, um, you know, the possibility for this to have a really large scale impact on the way that we think, um, will be there. And, um, and this is inspired by a question from Iron Lowenstein from, uh, from one of the feeds and, um, we're coming up on the end here as we hit the top of the hour. Um, but, um, I th you mentioned worldviews and how different those are among, uh, among different groups. And obviously they're radically different between the Western society and mm -hmm. these indigenous tribes. And I'm wondering how do you think these things are going to, to mesh, um, both in the technology, technology as well as the cultural space. I mean, I think my ambition is that maybe if we start to recognize these different myth mythologies of technology that I call them in the book and these different sort of world belief systems and ways of really understanding how humans can relate to nature that will, you know, we have a sort of a, a dominant global understanding of how humans relate to nature and it's not incredibly healthy and it's not incredibly based upon nature what i think what i think is going to happen is that we'll begin to recognize that we need to form a more nature-based culture globally that that whatever that universal sort of global culture that we speak about and recognize now is going to become more nature-based in universally nature-based and it will be informed by all these different understandings and recognitions of all the different ways that we can live with nature so that we're now recognizing, okay, agriculture doesn't have to be monoculture and doesn't have to destroy the soil and, and um, you know, uh, you know, take all the water and, and then pollute it. So we, we're recognizing now that regenerative agriculture is incredibly important. So that's a movement towards more nature-based culture within fashion. And I think that we're going to start seeing those incidents happening more and more again, even to the point where my ambition is like, how can we see that starting to happen in industry? How can we see that happening, starting to plan instead of the way we design cities? So I think that's sort of the next way. And and we're on, the, we're already on those tracks. We're, I know that sometimes we all feel like we're very distant from that future that we envision that we want to live in. But I also rec think that we need to recognize that we're moving through that phase of getting to those spaces. And we're probably constantly going to be in that mode of transition. There's never going to be an end point when we're there. We're constantly in that phase and we're always just being reminded that we need to speed it up at this point in time and we need to expand it and we need to, you know, recognize it faster and acknowledge the science. But we're getting there. And so... You know, I think, you know, thankful to these types of lectures and people spreading the word in these formats that we are, we are getting there and, we, and, and, you know, it's not, you know, sometimes it feels quite dismal, but it's actually a place of like optimism to think about our future and to think about what it could be. Well, what a nice way to end. Thank you so much, Julia. This was really great. And uh, your your book is on my coffee table for uh, the foreseeable futures. Every, everyone comments on it that sees it. They love oh, it. Oh, so that's thank fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks, Xander. Yeah. Take care. Thank you all. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a member of the Long Now Foundation. For less than the price of a book or movie, monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. 
Thank you for listening.